Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Hockey PDO Cast is brought to you by Get Down BP, which brings people together with the goal of getting blood pressure down in a fun and interactive way. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my uh, my good ranking buddy, Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much, just uh, hanging out in the morning. Nice to be up early talking to you, Dmitry, as as we did uh, last Monday. Well, it's, coming, it's coming a weekly tradition. I think I've done five episodes of the hockey pdo cast this month and you've been on three of them so you're uh you're becoming a mainstay i'm trying to you know take over from chris johnson without mm. the insider you know ability or the the uh, good gravelly voice mm. but those are his two best qualities so i know i know it's just i'm like really low rent chris johnson <laughs> on the pdo cast uh that's still a pretty good gig man um so last week we did the uh we discussed the center position and we we ranked the top 10 and we discussed a bunch of other names as well um today we're gonna do defensemen who uh for my money represent the most fascinating position in the league i mean i guess you can make an argument for goalies but i know so little about them that i kind of always feel uneasy talking about them whereas with defensemen it's like in this perfect sweet spot of you know the combination of how important a role they play in a team's success how much the position itself has changed over the years as the game has and sort of how it still seems to generate the most debate in terms of our expectations of what a top defenseman should look like and what they should be capable of doing. So you put all that stuff together and you've got a, you've got a pretty interesting podcast here, I hope, of, uh, of us trying to figure out who the best guys in the league are. Yeah, I feel like the difference between defensemen and goalies is that I, I have more confidence in knowing more than the average person about how to rank defensemen, whereas goalies, it's like, you can throw out like throw what we have, and we like we're coming up with better stats for goalies, but I still don't feel like we're that far ahead of like general knowledge in terms of like watching a goalie and picking out who's good. Right. So it's like a, a little bit different situation where there's more to draw on for defensemen. Yeah, and the thing with goalies is that you know there's like the few top guys that are very obviously very good, and then you have the guys who clearly aren't, and then you have most of the position is just like kind of in that in between and the debate you get into is sort of whether they're closer to the higher end or the bottom end, but it's still like such a gray area. Whereas with defensemen, I feel like we can't have a more 
um, well-rounded conversation. But at the same time, like, I still feel like, um, I don't know, I guess, what's the best way to put it? Like, our tools for measurement or sort of our understanding of the position is still not ideally where it needs to be or where it will be in the next couple of years because there's still a lot of, like, when it comes to measuring defensive play, I feel like we still have a bit of a ways to go. Yeah, I mean, until we can accurately have some sort of uh, qualifier uh, or quantifier for, like, gap control and positioning, you know, we're always going to be a little bit behind the eight ball with uh, measuring defensive play because, like, you know, we have some good stats for defense for defensive play but like Mm. there's so much more to it that you know players do without the puck that we can't really measure at the current time so there's always a bit of mystery in there and you know you could argue that um having taking a more analytical uh approach to analyzing this position is more important than for any other just because I feel like our uh, our eyes tend to really deceive us quite a bit when it comes to defensemen just because typically if they make a mistake, it winds up in the back of their team's net unless the goalie yep. bails them out. So it's very easy to latch on to those couple of things, and you see that time and time again with some of the top defensemen in the league who, I know, the, the, the more ice time you play uh, and the more you're out there, the more you're exposed to those types of things. So when that adds up, all of a sudden you can kind of quickly trick yourself into thinking that you know the defenseman is a, is a massive liability or uh, can't be trusted, but then you actually have to dig a little bit deeper and it typically tells a different tale. So I feel like that's really important here. But I mean, the the other nuance as well is, you know, for defensemen, there's so much that goes into the quality of competition debate because, you know, you see um, there's a, there's a bunch of guys that are near the top of uh, all sorts of shot metrics and are very analytically funny guys, but they're generally being, you know, sheltered with super cake minutes. And then, we kind of have to weigh that against the guys who are always playing against the other team's best, like a Mark Edward Vlasic, and as a result, their numbers aren't going to be that great. So there isn't just like this sort of one uh, cut-or-dried uh, number that we can just point to as as the be-all, end-all. We sort of have to take all of that into account. So, Dimitri, are you trying to tell me that Mark Barbario isn't better than Mark Edward Vlasic? I mean, the the numbers speak for themselves. It's, I mean, look at his coursey. <laughs> Um, make, up a, make a lot of old school analysts mad yeah yeah well, I, I remember the um the the days where eric jelena while he was on the uh on the new jersey devils oh, was 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 ripping it up yeah i remember watching him and thinking like how is this even happening that he has a good coursey because the guy can't friggin' skate yeah but i mean there is a fine fine line there because you could sort of i mean it's not to that big of a degree, but like you could sort of say a similar thing about Cody Franzen, but he's actually he's actually been legit. Um, obviously, maybe yeah. now he's in the later stages of his career. But um, so here's a sort of uh, thought exercise, philosophical question for you: Do you think we've figured out the ideal amount of ice time the defenseman should be eating up on a game on a game to game basis? Because you know, for the most part, it seems like we just randomly, arbitrarily pick that twenty minute mark as. Um, you know, a rough starting point, and then some of the top guys play a couple minutes more, but then some of the fourth, fourth, uh, third pairing defensemen maybe play a little bit less. But it seems to always kind of gravitate around what's ultimately a pretty arbitrary number that I feel like we pick just because it's it's nice and round. Yeah, I mean, I guess it probably depends on the player, mm-hmm. right? Like there there are some guys who expend more energy during their shifts than than others. Like I would say, like Eric Carlson isn't going to be the same as a Brent Burns. 
Right. Uh, Brent Burns, like, I don't want him to play more than, like, 22 to 24 minutes. Right. And in, like, a big game, whereas, like, Eric Carlson, you can throw him out there for 35 and you're probably not getting, you know, much of a, a drawback in terms of performance. Right. He just, like, God, he's so efficient. It's so frustrating if you're, uh, you know, watching him just completely destroy teams and then the Ottawa Senators are so boring and, you know, undo all of his good work. It, it, I, I guess, like, if they just had one other really good defenseman on that team, that'd be a bit of a different story, but mm. uh, he's, he's kind of on an island there. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be a while until we, uh, until Eric Carlson's name comes up in these rankings. Uh, a, yes, it may be. It's a spoiler. Um, yeah, the reason why I brought that up is because, you know, a guy that was on my honorable mentions list uh, was Ryan Suter, and whenever I think of him, I think of this discussion – and it's, you know, when you watch him play, it does, especially in the past when he was playing like over 29 minutes a game, which was absurd. Um, it felt like, you know, he was leaving a bit on the table just because he sort of mm-hmm. knew that he had to pace himself. And I always wondered whether that was the most optimal way to use him. You obviously have to, you know, figure out who's going to be taking up those minutes and whether they're actually a, a useful contributor themselves. But it always felt like when you're watching Suter play, like, if he really needed to turn it on, he could be a lot better, a lot more effective, but he just knew, especially early in the game, that he had so much of a workload ahead of him that he couldn't afford to exert himself like that. And so, I don't know. I, I just think that's a, an interesting talking point because we still don't really have an answer to that, and obviously it's going to be on a case-by-case basis, but it's just that like sort of in-game attrition of workload versus uh, productivity. Yeah, and you know, not just in game too, because he has to, you know, budget out energy for the whole season playing right. like that. I mean, I know he isn't playing those kinds of minutes, at least that that extreme anymore. Mm. What I always found confusing about uh, the situation in Minnesota when he was playing that many minutes is it's not like they had a blue line of you know punks that they needed him to play half the game. They were pretty severely underusing a guy like Jared Spurgeon for a long time, and like you know, you could say maybe they were sheltering. Spurgeon a little bit and they didn't trust him but you know now that he started to play heavier minutes you can see that he doesn't really need to be sheltered like he's a strong top pairing guy so it it always confused me a little bit that with those kinds of decisions it makes more sense if you're in a situation where you know you've got some injuries on the blue line and you're playing a bunch of rookies or something but if, if you've got you know, a couple good pairings, you can spread those minutes out, especially if you've got like different guys that are good on the same side, right? Like uh, early in the year this year, I know uh, Jeff Petrie had some struggles for the Canadians, partially because he was playing with Carl Alsner, which mm-hmm. he still is, which is, you know, not optimal. But uh, Claude Julien was running out Shea Weber for like 29 minutes a game, which is a lot to ask of Shea Weber, uh, not just because he's not Ryan Suter, he's not that smooth skating guy. But he's also, you know, getting older in years. Got that big, heavy body, a muscle to lug around. Mm. And uh, he expends lots of energy on shifts with uh, big hits and big shots. And, you know, when you've got another guy on the right side like Jeff Petrie, you don't really need to do that. You can, you know, alternate your guys on the left side and run both of those guys in, you know, that medium level minutes of like maybe 24, 25 minutes a game. And then you don't have to worry about it as much. And you're not wearing out your supposed best defenseman. Right. And the funny thing is, you know, we're sort of painting this picture of, you know, we're talking the past tense. And I think Ryan, last time I checked, Ryan Suter was still leading the league in a, in five on five ice time per game. Oh, is he? Uh, wow. Yeah. 
good times. I mean, it's obviously dropped a bit over the past couple of years, but he's still yeah he's still playing over twenty seven uh, in all situations per night, and I, I believe he's like it's in the nineteens in uh, in five on five. So they're still riding him pretty hard. But I, another sort of thing when discussing Ryan Suter, and that's something that I struggled with on this list uh, more so than with the forward positions was, uh, you know, separating the play of individual guys from their partner. And Mm -hmm. it was kind of tough. Like if you could combine Ryan Suter and Jared Spurgeon, or, you know, we'll get into Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski, for example, but it's like, it's very tough to um, figure out necessarily whether it is just kind of a, you know, a beautiful partnership and a symbiotic relationship where they're helping each other out evenly or whether, you know, if you split them up, how they do, because for some of these cases, we don't really have recent examples of what that would look like. So we just kind of have to play a bit of a guessing game or, or just dock both guys a little bit as a result. And that was a, that was a tricky part of this rankings. Yeah. It, it's always really tough to do that with defensemen, especially in situations where, you know, guys are pretty consistent with their partners or, especially over like multiple years. Uh, I mean, I have the advantage with the sport logic data that I can look into like individual contributions and mm. see like what they're actually doing on the ice. But even then, like there's a certain amount of impact that you're going to have on what you're doing with and without the puck, right? Like if you have a defense partner, that's like extraordinarily good at stopping uh, controlled entries against, you're going to have, you know, like more loose puck recoveries in the defensive zones off of dump ins because you're just, there's just going to be more of them. Right, you're not gonna have as many uh, individual battles at the at the blue line. You know, like there's little repercussions to every little play. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to look at that. Yeah, there's yeah, there's obviously uh, you know stylistic differences, and if you're playing with uh, a guy that profiles a certain way compared to another, your game itself might change, and so that's it's tricky. Um, so we're getting into the honorable mentions uh, seg- segment here. And, you know, Ryan Suter and Jared Spurgeon, two names you already mentioned, so we don't have to discuss them any further. Um, there was kind of, I, I split this part into two separate crops, and it was like the next wave of guys. And then there was sort of the old guard. And, you know, the next wave, I had guys like Colton Preco and Jacob Slavin and the aforementioned Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski. Um, do you think there's... Any other names that I'm missing there in terms of sort of that under 25 uh, up and comer who's already pretty much a, a first pairing defenseman, but you think that in the next year or two could really vault into that top 10 discussion? Well, I mean, you mentioned Zach Wierenski. I think he's a, a future Norris winner. Mm-hmm. Um, in Carolina, Brett Pesci, I think, is almost as underrated as Jacob Slavin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, like you said, it's kind of hard to separate them as a pairing, but. Those two guys are like over the last two years, like right at the very top in terms of like high end defensive play. Uh, they're almost like in terms of uh, defensive pairing, the only comparable one that I can look at uh, that was consistent over the last two years. Well, actually, only the last one year was uh, Subban and Ekholm in terms of like just shutting players down. So, like, that's a pretty high watermark for those guys to be had already. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have mine set up a little bit differently. Uh, mm-hmm. I basically have like the, the top defenseman, there's a bit of a gap and then there's like five totally interchangeable talents in my opinion, where like, depending on the year, one of them might be ahead of the other, okay. but I have like an arbitrary ranking and then I've got my like guys that make up the rest of the top 10. All right. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, well, let's, let's go through some of the rest of my honorable mentions then then we'll get into the top 10 um sounds good 
so yeah, you mentioned actually one one final thought on Wierenski there. I completely agree about the uh, Norris comment. I mean, obviously that's sort of doesn't really have much practical value to us because if he's you know if he's finishing like fourth or fifth in the Norris voting, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. But he, what True. he's what he's got going for himself is that I feel like he's one of those guys that seems like he's going to rack up the counting stats, especially on the power play. So uh, voters seem to love that kind of stuff. So that's working for him in his favor. But yeah, so in terms of the old guard. Um, Guys that I wanted to put in here, but I just didn't have space for ultimately were Crystal Tang, Duncan Keith, uh, Dustin Bufflin, um, and then I guess you can classify them in the old guard, although they're still, you know, I guess late 20s and in their prime, um, Ryan McDonough and Maniskin. Yeah, I feel like those are fair. Uh, I didn't have McDonough that high. Mm. Uh, honorable mention for me is uh, Chris Russell. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> It'd be funny if I actually like went hard in there just to like see what would happen, mm. see how uh, angry the PDO cast listeners would be. Yeah, just make that your corner. Yeah, uh, I had Roman Yossi pretty close. I actually didn't uh, have Roman Yossi rated very highly until I uh, redid my project this year, and he's just like so ridiculous offensively, and yet he is—he is really weak defensively. Mm. But he's—he's uh, he's such a game changer on offense that. I kind of have to put him yeah. up at the top. He's almost like uh, Eric Carlson level on offense, which is you know crazy to think about, but he just doesn't have the all-around game that uh, Carlson has. Yeah, so it's all about ultimately what it's your net impact, right, or what you're bringing to the table versus what you're taking off. So as long as uh, the good outweighs the bad, uh, that's all that matters. Yeah, with with McDonough, um, I mostly wanted to bring him up in this discussion just because. It's kind of weird, you know, heading into the year, um, you would have thought that he'd be a natural fit to play with Kevin Shattenkirk and that that pairing mm-hmm. would take off, especially now that he was kind of unchained from uh, from, from Dan Girardi and the anchor that he is. But I think they've only played like 40 minutes or so together at 515. And, you know, they started off the year together and then things just didn't go well right off the bat. And LN Video just quickly overreacted and went away from it and, He's been playing a lot with like Nick Holden and Brendan Smith, and he's been fine, but he hasn't necessarily been lighting the world on fire either. So I guess I've been a bit disappointed. Like I think if he came out of the gate really hot here, I would have been very tempted to move him up this list, but he fell as a result. And the other guy is Matt Niskan in there, and you know he's missed a chunk of the year so far. But if you look at sort of the trajectory of the cap season, um, there's a bit of correlation and causation and we can have that discussion but it's very it seems like a very big coincidence that you know when that madness can went out of the lineup they really fell off the table and then he comes back in and all of a sudden their performance as a team skyrockets again and he's one of those uh perpetually underrated guys that doesn't necessarily rack up a ton of points or isn't very flashy but just gets the job done in pretty much every area of the game yeah Niskanen's a pretty underrated guy and like you said he, he's just an all-around beast like He's not a guy who's going to, you know, put up 60 points or score a ton of power play goals, even though, like, he can do that, uh, especially on the Capitals' power play, which has, you know, been the envy of the league for so long, even though they were a little bit, uh, took a step down last year. But he's just, like, he does everything really well. Uh, A lot like Jacob Slavin, actually. Uh, Just, like, no real amazing standout skill, necessarily, Mm. but just solid in every aspect i actually just 
curio- out of curiosity, went and checked uh, Corsica mm-hmm. to uh, look at the McDonough Shattenkirk situation. Right. So they were outscored three to two, which is not that bad, yeah. in 40 minutes of gameplay together, mm-hmm. or 41, but they had a 56.6% Corsi together. Yes. Which yeah. is, you know, the Rangers aren't very good at uh, possession, so maybe they should uh, try that again. Yeah, I believe it was like uh, it was early on. It was that Hockey Night in Canada game against the Leafs, and Lundqvist got pulled, and things were really going off the rails early, and they went down big, and they kind of just split them up and went away from it, and never really revisited it. So I guess that's another notch in the uh, in the cap for the people who want Elaine uh, Mignot to get fired uh, from New York. <sighs> so yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just as a fan of hockey and just out of curiosity, I'd love to just see those two play together for an extended period of time and see the results because I feel like they might not necessarily be 56% good, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were hovering in that mid-50s range and that would be uh, that would put them in the discussion for the, amongst the top pairings in the league. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it just makes logical sense, right? You've got like an offensive guy who has a bit of defensive liability and then you've got like a stud defensive guy who can also chip in on offense and is a pretty good you know, puck handler himself it makes sense that those two should be a little bit magic together if you give them a chance. Mm. So this is a, this is a good segue then into getting into my top 10. Um, I have a, a guy here slightly higher at 10 than you did in your list. And the reason why I said it's a good segue is because similarly, um, I think when Nicholas Jalmerson came to the Coyotes, we expected that, there'd be a fit there between him and Ekman Larson. And I was fascinated to see about that, see how that dynamic would work. And they themselves haven't, I don't know if it's 40 minutes or so, or maybe might be slightly more or slightly less, but for the most part, they haven't really played together this season. And Ekman Larson has instead played with Jason Demers mostly. And they've been perfectly fine, especially when you uh, adjust for team factors and look at it from a relative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I had Ekman Larson here at 10 and He's a very tricky guy to evaluate, especially when you look at his results for the past couple of years, because it's just been such a wasteland around him that it's kind of tough to tell whether it's ultimately whether it's ultimately a good or a bad thing. Because on the one hand, you could argue that he hasn't had any help, and he'd be you know his numbers would look way better in, in better surroundings. But at the same time, it's also like he's just gotten to do everything, so his you know he's inflated his. Uh, his counting stats as well. So it's kind of, it's, it's tough to evaluate from that perspective. But I think that, you know, just when you watch him and, and you, when you look at everything as a whole, uh, his talent is just so immense that it was tough to keep him off of this list. Yeah. He was an honorable mention for me. Uh, cause I actually rejigged my list a little bit off of what the, uh, pure numbers had, mm. but, uh, Eggman Larson, when I broke it down, he plays the toughest minutes in the league by like a significant margin and not just for defensemen. He's just like, you know, we, we talked about Eric Carlson being on an island in Ottawa, but at least he's got some forwards that can really, you know, make some game-changing plays. Uh, Arizona, until Clayton Keller, you know, was a barren wasteland. And even now, you know, that's just one guy. So if it's just those two figuring it out. Uh, you know, it looks like – like I thought Arizona made some nice moves on defense in mm. the last couple of years. I thought they'd be a lot better than they are right now. But, uh, you know, hockey's pretty random. Uh, I actually liked uh, – Bonks Mullet had a tweet yesterday, maybe it was the day before, saying that uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, he didn't know if they were you know, a feel-good story or just another example that everything in the NHL is random and nobody knows what the hell they're doing. 
which is like, you know, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Yep. <laughs> like when you look at what's going on. But yeah, I, he was, you know, in the 11, 12, 13 range for mm-hmm. me, Ekman Larson. So give me your, give me your, give me your 10 and then give me your nine as well. And we'll just okay. discuss both guys. My 10 is a guy I had to move up big time from my list, but I just believe in him a lot. And that's Hampus Lindholm. Oh. I just, for some reason, he just didn't come across well in the statistics this year. He rated 31. And, you know, that doesn't make sense to me, but, you know, there's sometimes there's you got to trust your eye test a little bit. So, uh, Andrew, you're, <laughs> I moved a, him up. you're a madman. Ten. I know. I know. He, I have him in my top five. I know. He's he's down to ten for me. You're you're. you're but he wasn't even on your list uh, on, on your list this year, was he? No. I, like I said, he ranked 31. Yeah. He, the fact that you had can't follow over him was uh, I want to revoke your sports net. Uh, <laughs> your sports and employee tag or, or, or whatever you're yeah, you're off the or job at least the analytics tag yeah you're off the job <laughs> um, yeah but there were like there are certain things that went uh fowler's way like uh one of the things that i highly rated was like puck management hmm. uh not making mistakes and last year lindholm was really bad for turnovers really bad for uh, low pass success rate whereas uh fowler is really good at that and uh fowler is actually like one of the best defensemen in the nhl for clean zone exits which surprised me uh and he had a really good year last year yeah. you know i know that it, it's easy to crap on fowler because he's been pretty overrated for a really long time but mm. uh, I, I think that there's a reason why the ducks trust him and why you know he finally had his like breakout year offensively last year uh there's good things with Fowler that have been kind of hidden by some bad partners. You know, I, I like Hampus Lindholm a lot, but he also hasn't had to carry Kevin Bieksa around for a couple of years. That's true. But uh, I, I like I like Hampus Lindholm more than Cam Fowler. It's just that that's how it came out for right the the weighting of the statistics this year. And yeah. yeah, exactly. So you know, there's my methodology. I also disagree with myself sometimes. So and uh, my number nine was Jacob Slavin. Mm. Okay, well let's let's stay on uh, on Fowler and Lindholm for one second here. Um, I'm not surprised to hear about the uh, zone exit uh, portion of the equation because um, you know, especially watching in the playoffs last year, um, I thought Fowler was amazing, and when he got, came back from injury and in that uh, in the in the Predators series, he was just uh, just doing everything, and and you could sort of see the kind of individual talent and ability with the puck that has made people um talk him up so highly and i feel like I've, I've been sort of in the middle on fowler because you know you have sort of this contingent that talks him up as the ducks best defenseman because of that talent and and sort of latches onto that and then you have the more analytically minded people who um kind of dismiss him and think that he's a very replaceable guy and i think that he's somewhere in the middle i mean i personally wouldn't have given him that eight year 52 million dollar contract this summer i would have um, tried to sell high on him while I could and just kind of focused elsewhere, especially with all the blue line talent they have. But um, now that he's still on the team for, for the foreseeable future, he's a, he's a, a good asset for them in terms of on ice ability with, with Lindholm. The thing ultimately with me is like the eye test checks out. Um, he just looks remarkable. But the other thing is like, when you look at the numbers, um, when him and Josh Manson are out there, the ducks just oh, don't, ridiculous. the ducks just don't give up anything. And yeah, that matches up perfectly with what you're seeing. It's like, I don't, I don't know how they're really doing it, but it just, they're like always in the right position at the right time. And they're just snuffing everything out. And it just, the game bogs down so much for the other team whenever they're out there. And that 
it's like if you're gonna you know if you're gonna talk about um defensemen as guys that need to really just be kind of shut down guys like i feel like they're the preeminent shutdown pairing in the league just because they they really just stop stop the other team in its tracks yeah they're they're incredible uh and you know that pairing this year i i think i had them uh in my top pairings of the mm-hmm. first quarter of the season for Sportsnet, they've just been ridiculous this year uh, defensively. You know, both of them are like, I like Hampus Lampholm offensively to a certain extent. I don't think he's like a game breaker in any way, but he can like put up points and create uh, some offense for his teammates just by, you know, getting the puck to the right places. Yep. Uh, defensively though, is where those two just are ridiculous together. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Like it's, actually kind of absurd when you like look at their numbers compared to the rest of the team and i know i recognize that the ducks are kind of injured right now and you know the rest of their team is really bad but those two together like the gap is gigantic yeah and actually you know what J- josh manson's a guy who uh and he got a nice low contract uh in season he's a guy i really uh just enjoy watching play even when Lindholm was out of the lineup to start the year because he's you know, based on his build and his offensive numbers throughout his entire career, you would kind of just expect that he'd be just one of those kind of old school lumbering defensive defensemen. But then when you watch him play, like he's weirdly got a green light to just do anything he wants to with a puck. And he's like, I think he's had a couple breakaways this season and he's just constantly just trying wild stuff in the offensive zone. And I really enjoy that because it goes just sort of so counterintuitive to what we've been uh, led to believe a guy who looks like him should play like. So I love that. I mean, you know, Colton Preco is like the extremely rich man's version of that. But um, I, lo- I love those guys. Yeah, it's always great to see the guys who kind of subvert expectations. It's like when a little guy like lays out a huge check, right? And you're like, oh, good for them. And then yeah. you realize that they're actually like super feisty. Yeah, Ryan, Ryan Allen is just dominating people physically. Yeah, he's a, he's a great example because he's really strong and like he doesn't play like a like a small defenseman is is supposed to play or like you expect them to play. He's extremely physical and really strong defensively, and like he he can produce offense. But like right. I feel like he's focused so much on defensive play in his career to just make the NHL at his size that he's become like this stalwart. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had Jacob Slavin at nine. Um, I don't know we already touched on him a little bit uh, with the, with him and Pesci and. Uh, the Hurricanes were really smart to get out ahead of it and just lock those guys both up long term, and those are going to end up looking like great contracts for them. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, I don't really know what else to add. Like, he just seems like he's going to be one of those guys who we're going to be talking about as one of the most underrated players in the league for a long time because I'm not necessarily sure he's ever going to rack up those counting stats. So he's always going to be one of those things that you know, the analytics are going to look great and he's going to do a bit of everything, but the, our belief on what he can do and sort of general perception probably won't line up at least for the foreseeable future, but that's perfectly fine. I'm sure the hurricanes aren't complaining. Yeah. It's weird because I feel like, I don't know if it's just that there's a lot more attention paid to the hurricanes analytically than other teams or, or what, but it seems like even broadcasters have started to pick up on Jacob Slavin being a big difference maker. I've noticed it a couple times on Sportsnet where people will just go on like not a rant, but like a, this like glowing two minute 
talk about how Jacob Slavin is this huge underrated defenseman. So like there's some steam being picked up, even though he doesn't have the huge counting numbers. And plus, you know, like I've got to throw in some hurricanes at some point into the uh, into the high rankings, because if I don't, Eric Tolsky will uh, jump into my DMs and be like, hey, what about this guy? Yeah, I love uh, Eric Tolsky. That's a nice shout out. Yeah, he gets feisty in the DMs. He does. He he loves uh, making sure that we recognize his, his best guys, <laughs> which makes sense because, you know, he's obviously put in a lot of work there. And, like, you look at uh, how great that Slavin-Pesci pairing is and how great that uh, blue line is in Carolina. Mm. And finally, it looks like they're making some progress in the standings to go along with their excellent play on the ice. Yeah. So but the, I, I hope he's uh, real proud right the now. The thing with uh, – he should be, but the thing with Tolski and, and, you know, some of the other guys um, – who we have the good fortune of knowing who work in NHL front offices now is, is sort of the way they uh, frame those criticisms or direct our attention. They're like, Oh, have you, have you considered looking at this stuff? Like it's never, Oh, you're wrong. You're an idiot. It's never, they, they never like approach it as an angry commenter would. They sort of approach it in a much more well-reasoned uh, way where they're kind of guiding us. So I appreciate that. Yeah. When I was ranking uh, the, the defenseman, cause like obviously I do like year by year separately, uh, when I looked at last year, like uh, Slavin and P- Pesci were like even higher than I like anticipated, and like one of the, the only reason that Pesci didn't make the top twenty is because you know it was a three year thing, and those two really took a step in the last, last two years, like mm-hmm. uh, progressive steps. Right. So I was direct messaging uh, Eric, and I was like, Eric, like is are Pesci and Slavin actually this good, or are my numbers just kind of like off? I'm waiting. Am I waiting the wrong thing? And he was like, Yes. They are that good. Make sure you mention that they're that good. Yeah, and I think you noted this in Slavin's write-up in your piece, but it really stands out when you watch him play is just how insanely aggressive and effective he is um, yep. attacking opposing uh, guys with a puck. Like, he just he gets after it, and he, and he really makes life a living hell for them, and I think that's obviously kind of a big reason of why he's so effective defensively. Um, so obviously, you know, there's different ways to approach um playing the position but i i i personally favor the guys who instead of kind of sagging back and waiting till the last second to kind of crowd around their net and try to block the shot i appreciate when they when they just go after it right at the blue line and try to kind of stop the guy from coming in with with a full head of steam and with possession of the puck because all of a sudden their life is going to become much more difficult yeah and you know when you're that kind of aggressive player sometimes slavin doesn't really have this but uh some guys who play that way will end up getting uh, walk a little bit more often because, you know, when you put yourself out there and take more uh, risks to get greater rewards, sometimes a great player will find a way to, to beat you and make you look silly. So it's important to recognize that even if a guy gets walked once in a while, the like the ultimate uh, end goal is still stronger because a guy like Jacob Slavin, not only is he going to reduce the amount of time that uh, teams are on the attack, it also gives more time to his for his team to set up and make counterattacks, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a double-edged sword there being aggressive, especially when you have the skill to actually separate players from the puck the way that Jacob Slavin does. Like he ranked, I think, within the top five defensemen in the last two years for defensive play when I was breaking it down, which is, you know, for his age group, really imp- incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, Angela, let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor, and we'll, uh, we'll pick the discussion back up on other things. Sounds good. Anyone can develop high blood pressure. Fact, 7.5 million Canadians live with hypertension every day. 
The mission of Get Down BP is to bring everyone together with the goal of getting blood pressure down in a fun and interactive way. So join the community at getdownbp.ca to learn more because getting blood pressure down has never felt so good. A community-based initiative fueled by one of Canada's leading pharmaceutical research-based companies in collaboration with Hypertension Canada. Let's chat a little bit about SeatGeek, today's sponsor of the Hockeypedia cast. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there's a better, simpler way to buy, and that's with SeatGeek. SeatGeek's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events because with their seamless mobile app, you can buy and sell tickets in just a couple taps. They'll scour all the sites for you, putting together the best values in an easy-to-read color-coded map so that you make sure you're putting your butt in the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's really nothing quite like seeing your favorite player in the world do the one thing that he does better than anyone else in this world. Whether it's a Dan Girardi snow angel, a Chris Russell block shot, or even a Mark Borowiecki bone-crunching body check while the other team scores a goal anyways. Sign me up for all those things. And the best part is that if you sign up yourself, you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase just because you've listened to today's Hockeypedia cast. All you have to do to claim that reward is download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code PDO, and they'll give you $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now, let's get back to the show. Okay, so uh, I think I have to give my ninth guy here, and I I guess you already sort of uh, spoiled that he's in your honorable mentions, uh, but that's Roman Yossi for me. Ooh, Roman Yossi in the top 10. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Can you I love the offense. Can I combine Can I combine Yossi and Ekholm into one person here and just have them as the as the ninth best guy? No, because that would be like the first best guy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You're right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's this sort of seven to, I guess, like 12 or 13 range for me was ultimately kind of just one big tier. And it yeah. might not seem like that based on the way we've laid out these rankings, but if you wanted to say Yossi was the 12th or 13th best guy, I'd have no issue with that either. I don't have a you know super uh, strong conviction here with it, but I've I've liked this game this year with with Ekholm, and I think that's that's a pairing that you know makes a lot of sense. I'm kind of curious to see what they do when Ryan Ellis ultimately comes back from injury, whether they go back to what they did last year, which was also very successful for them, uh, with Subban and Ekholm being the shutdown pairing and Yossi and Ellis being, I guess, the de facto second pairing for them, or if um, or if they stick with this and maybe try Ellis and Subban together, or, or what they're going to do if they're going to split those three, all those guys up into three separate pairings, but this is going to be a fascinating thing to follow, but for now, um, the Yossi-Ekholm pairing has just been uh, has been very dominant for the, for the Predators. Yeah, I, I've been really impressed with Roman Yossi to start this season. I think he's had one of the best starts of his career. And, you know, part of that's probably due to uh, having a defensive insulator of Ekholm's quality. But, man, has he ever been sharp? And just watching him, he hasn't been giving up as many of those, like, brutal defensive uh, gaps that he he did last year. I think he had a really rough Stanley Cup final last year. Uh, trying to shut down Sidney Crosby, it didn't work out very well. Mm. And, you know, Laviolette never really was able to adjust anything uh, defensively. Uh, he he really liked the Subban-Malkin matchup, and it worked out really well for him until I think the last, I think game five maybe, Malkin had a really good game. But for the most part, uh, that was shut down really well, and he just couldn't figure out how to, you know, rejig things so that Crosby was not given free reign and Yossi had some struggles, but this year it looks like he's playing a little bit tighter while uh, still generating that crazy amount of offense. So I've been really impressed with him. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm not gonna not also. Not, I'm not gonna dock him too much for struggling to uh, to defend Sidney Crosby. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's not a really a fair comparison, eh? Like, I guess everybody will struggle at some point for for a guy like that. It's like dinging a guy for not being able to catch McDavid. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next guy here on my list uh, is Alex Petrangelo, and that's what I have as well. Hmm. So that's very interesting. Listen. I can already foresee the future here, and it's already starting to happen, and this is going to become a big uh, subplot of this season. But Petrangelo seems to have been labeled as the next, it's he's due, it's his season guy for the Norris. Yep. And there's going to be that Drew Doughty-level backlash where people are going to start talking about how Petrangelo actually isn't even that good to sort of you know counterbalance that and defend Eric Carlson and as was the case with Dowdy uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, my opinion is going to s- remain steadfast in the fact that while Petrangelo was definitely not the best defenseman in the league and he should not be winning the Norris, um, he's really damn good. So we should also appreciate that as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the struggle that happens in like public discussions with the, these kind of things, right? Where like a player is overrated and because of that automatically people think overrated equals bad and that's just not the case alex peter petrangelo is amazing he's incredibly good defensively uh i would say the weakest area of his game is you know puck movement mm-hmm. but uh he's still quite good at that i'm just uh yeah i'm with you on it that i don't think he's in that norris contending area and you know i, I guess it depends for different people like what they consider like the the threshold for where Norris guys are but for me it's it's in that top six guys that are kind of vying for it every year and below that it's like there's really good players but they never really get to that level for me to be in the Norris conversation yeah I mean my formula for the Norris is Eric Carlson until the foreseeable future yeah, and you know that's apparently not what the writers think. No, which is really it's, weird. it's it's and you know it's it's a kind of I guess a boring story at this point, right? Like no, and there's no real uh, sort of nuance it to though, it. Well, now that, now that he's lost two in a row, which like I would say, like I think you can make really good arguments both years that Carlson lost the Norris Trophy, and I know people were really crapping on Doughty the year that he won it, uh, less so on Burns last year. Mm. But I think it was actually Doughty that was more deserving. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think you can make really good arguments both years that the players who won it were the best defensemen. But to for Carlson to lose it both years, I think is just so absurd in retrospect that like we're gonna look back on it and like if he doesn't win this year as well, mm. we're gonna look back on this era. And I feel I feel like the last two years are the two best years that Eric Carlson has given us. Yeah. And if he does, and he's looking the same this year, even with that uh, injury that kept him out at the beginning. If we look back on it, and he never wins a Norris in these three years, like that's a huge shame on the hockey writing and uh, voting community because it, like, that's a huge oversight. Yeah, I know he's already won two, and people think that, like, yo, know, he's got his due or whatever. But man, oh man, you got to recognize talent of that level. Well, and, and this isn't a problem that's unique to hockey either. Like it's happening in the NBA right now, where like LeBron James hasn't won the MVP in a few years because, you know, there was sort of that voter fatigue and everyone's just kind of trying to crown the new guy and write this story about how, um, you know, 
there's the league is going different places, but it's like, no, he's still been in the best player in the league for the past however many years. And it's likewise here with Carlson in terms of uh, his peers at the defense position. And I, I think, yeah, maybe a, an interesting story would be sort of just talking about how we're fortunate enough to witness this all-time career right now because, uh, yeah, you know, he's just a remarkable player and that is all that would also be a fascinating story too but it seems like uh sports writers these, these days don't want to go that way and i guess maybe we should start the carlson for uh for mastered and trophy uh buzz here <laughs> for uh overcoming uh voter fatigue maybe uh maybe maybe that's a campaign people can get behind yeah i feel like that makes sense and also you know the masterton for dealing with playing for the ottawa senators uh that was your comment and not mine <laughs> I, will, uh, I, I do not endorse that type of uh, that type of stuff. I'll own it entirely. Mm. Um, yeah. So Petrangelo and Petrangelo's also been one of those guys the past handful of years where you know it seems like Colin Preco, who we mentioned earlier in this podcast, has gotten uh, far more love from the analytics community, but it's been Petrangelo and whoever's been playing with, and mostly Jay Bomeister, who really has been washed up for a few years now that have been yeah. doing a lot of the heavy lifting for that team. So that's kind of been a part for of why his numbers might not look as impressive as they are. And this year it's a perfect storm where the Blues are this great story and, you know, they're atop the Western Conference and Petrangelo is shooting and scoring more. And, you know, Carlson was out to start the year a bit, I get, a bit, I guess. And then all of a sudden it's all coming together and you can kind of see the makings of, of what's going to happen in the in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, do you think there's some pushback against like you know the some like uh, analytic press for Petrangelo just because he's so recognized like from official sources like even when Petrangelo wasn't you know I would say even like a top ten defenseman you know like he's just considered a lock for every team Canada uh, you know he he's always in like the 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 named uh, defenseman as like the best defenseman in the league yeah. among. Uh, you know, broadcasters. Do you think that's part of it? Is that people see that he's always in that group and therefore feel no need to talk about him as if he's as good as he is? Yeah, I think there's some of that. Yeah, it's it's kind of that's a good point you mentioned. Uh, I didn't really think about that, but he always he's just been like rock solid. Kind of, he's been like a made man uh, in the mafia here, where it's just like he's just there's, there's, you don't even question it that he should just be in that tier, and he's always been a, a Team Canada guy and. I don't know. I guess it's it's deserved. Like he's not the flashiest player either, but he's very rock solid. And I mean, he's in our top ten here. So both you, both you and I are pretty clearly fans of his game as well. Yeah, and I feel like you know some of the accomplishments that Petrangelo has that uh, we don't really talk about is like he's pretty much the only reason that Jay Bomeister made Team Canada a couple years ago. You know, yeah. aside, I know Doug Armstrong was on the the selection committee or whatever you want to call it, but. And he, you know, Bomeister has been a Team Canada guy for a long time, but mm-hmm. Petrangelo has hidden Bomeister's inadequacies for a fair amount of time now. Yeah, no, he's been uh, he's been cooked, and it's been all Petrangelo. Um, so I guess we're in top seven, seven. here. Yeah, okay. So who do you have at seven? I have just outside my vaunted top six is uh, Brent Burns. I know he had a great year last year, yep. but uh, I find that. There are certain things about Brent Burns that give me a bit of pause that keep him slightly below that threshold. One of them is uh, he's surprisingly sheltered for, you know, a, a top uh, defenseman. Mm-hmm. He out of my uh, top twenty-three or whatever I did for Sportsnet, he was 
the most or the second most sheltered uh, guy after Tory Krug, which you know says a lot. He doesn't uh, play the heavy defensive minutes. That's Vlasic, and he doesn't actually play that many minutes, which is kind of surprising. They they spread uh, spread out their top <clears throat> their top four pretty significantly. So that plus uh, the over reliance on his shot, which for a defenseman is probably not the best tool to create offense. Right. Kind of drop him down a little bit. I still had him as the best uh, uh, offense creating defenseman in the league last three years, which you know people would argue Eric Carlson, but he was just like a gold machine for his team, mm-hmm. which uh, I rated highly, but uh, not uh, particularly great in transition and a bit messy with the puck on his stick. So Burns dropped down to seven for me, despite uh, his otherworldly offense. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely uh, he's definitely error prone. Um, although I guess you could make the argument that. W- Anyone that has the puck on a stick as often as he does will uh, will tend to to make mistakes like with it on occasion. Um, he's kind of had a weird year here, where you know it would have been reasonable to expect that he wouldn't necessarily do what he did last year or even the year prior, but there would be like a middle ground there, and he's really taken a bit of a hit. Um, although I I still believe you know, hey, he finally scored though. He finally scored. He finally got his first primary point of the year, I believe, which was. A couple games ago now um he's on a three game point streak now yeah, after yeah barely putting anything up for a really long time yeah and you know he still has what he's still on pace for what like 40 points or so and it i wouldn't be surprised at all to see him go on a tear here and get back into that 60-ish point range and you know he won't score near 30 goals again but high in the high teens i guess seems reasonable for him but he also we should mention that you know he looked really good with Paul Martin the past couple of years and Paul Martin having only played two games this year and instead his I think his main partner has been uh Joe Kim Ryan who I just found out about it recently so <laughs> it's uh you know it's been a bit of an adjustment for him and the year as a whole has been weird for for the San Jose Sharks um so I I, I like Burns here at seven um I you know in the summer I was talking up uh the fact that the Sharks should strongly considered trading him and selling high on him while they could after he'd won the Norris and obviously that was never going to happen that would have been such a bold move but it's looking uh it's looking more and more like that would have been the uh the prudent way to go for uh for Doug Wilson and his staff yeah especially at that age and if I remember correctly his contract is pretty absurd and I think it just kicked in this year too it's like oh yeah it runs for like eight years or so I believe so that takes him until he's 40 years old, yeah. which is, yeah, that's that's pretty risky, you know, uh, and over $8 million, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, just $8 million. So, yeah, that's that's a rough one. I mean, he's probably not going to shoot 1% the rest of the year, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see a little bit closer to what we remember of Brent Burns. But, yeah, there was definitely some regression on the way. It seemed like... Uh, you know, the last two years he was just shooting the lights out, and maybe this year he'll just have a two years worth of regression in the first half of the season yeah. and only have the one goal. You never know. So uh, ho- hopefully for his sake, though, he gets back uh, to normal because Brent Burns is a pretty fun player to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so we're at the sixth spot here, and I have a guy who I think you're going to have uh, slightly higher, but that's Mark Shiradano for me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he's... uh. He's just a fantastic player, and yep. I wouldn't be outraged if I had moved him higher on this list or someone else did, like like yourself. But I just I kind of had that top five, and he was just outside of it, just behind Hampus Lindholm. And you know, he's also one of those guys where 
I'm a big fan of the partner he plays with as well. So I, I feel like maybe just subconsciously I docked him a little bit for it just because it was tough to give him all of the credit for it. But I mean, what him and Dougie Hamilton have been doing since they really got United full time at some point last season has been remarkable. And like the Flames are like the best team in the league when the two of them are on the ice, basically. So, uh, yeah, he deserves uh, he deserves his, his share of love here. Yeah, I really like Mark Giordano. I have him one spot higher, but like I said before, when I get into the top six, there's like five guys that I see that like they're different players and different styles, but in overall impact, I find them mostly interchangeable. But uh, at number six, I had Duncan Keith, who mm. uh, didn't make your list. I still have him pretty high. I just, you know, like we said, it's tough to separate partners. And, uh, you know, I've looked at, Jalmerson a bit this year and how big of a like a drop off he's seen and you look at Brent Seabrook who's been Keith's you know longtime partner I I think Duncan Keith has a bigger impact on the game than we really give him credit for and I know he's won two Norrises but Mm. even still right now into into his 30s he's just a huge impact player who kind of runs that Blackhawks defense yeah I think that's certainly feasible I had him uh, sort of as that old guard uh, in my honorable mentions, but I think he's I think he's definitely slowed down a little bit. Uh, and listen, his peak was uh, so up there that even a drop off like that still makes him a very very good player. But you you're right, you do have to account for the fact of for who he's playing with and the fact that his primary partner this year has been Brent Seabrook, who is just I mean I don't he's bad he's he's, he's an abomination right now. And like they don't even use him on the power play that much anymore, I think. Like, which I, is the only thing he's really good yeah, at. Yeah, it's right? it's so weird. And like, you know, when the when the when the Predators skated laps around them last year, like Brent Seabrook was one of the main culprits. I mean, the, Joe Quenville was riding him so much, and I, I think Quenville's a, a heck of a coach. But his love for and, and and sort of loyalty to Seabrook and what he was in the past has been a bit of his undoing here where he just he just can't really play anymore in today's NHL and he was getting exposed and obviously you know if a guy like Keith has to play with him for the majority of his ice time that's gonna submarine his numbers a little bit so I agree I I think I think Duncan Keith is a bit higher than I would uh than I feel comfortable with for my taste but uh he's still a heck of a player even if he isn't what he used to be anymore yeah, I mean, if you like just looking at the comparables that I had for Seabrook on my rankings list, it was like Ian Cole and uh, who else was down there? I think even that might be generous, honestly. Yeah, Alex Petrovich. Mm, yeah. You know, and I think that's you know that's with Seabrook getting boosted a little bit by playing with Keith. So that's not exactly the great first pairing defenseman in the NHL. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, based on everything we know about. Uh, sort of how the Blackhawks operate and, and Stan Bowman's wizardry. I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that there will be some poor sap that winds up taking on Brent Seabrook's contract <laughs> at some time in the future. Um, and somehow that the Blackhawks are probably going to get like an asset back in return or something, and we're all just going to be like, how the hell did this happen again? Yeah, I feel like uh, last year I probably would have thought that, mm. and then I look at the Jal- Jalmerson trade, and I was like, mm, yeah. maybe not, though. Yeah, that's true. Wait, so Connor Murphy didn't make your list? No, he did not. Okay. okay. Well, the good thing is uh, Brent works in a year two of his eight-year contract. So. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, yeah, so Duncan Keith, um, we talked about him. You had him at 
put six or seven? Did you say yeah six? Yeah, right? six. And I had uh, Giordano at five. Giordano Giordano is just like such a like uh, he's got the offense. If you need him to do that, he's got that wicked shot. He can find holes on the power play, but just his defensive play and ability to move the puck up the ice is next level. And one of the things I looked at was you know, what kind of defensive stats his partners had without him. And the impact that he has on Dougie Hamilton year over year Mm -hmm. is absurd. Like, Dougie Hamilton was really, really poor defensively, uh, not last year but the year before where he wasn't playing with Giordano. Then last year, all of a sudden, he's, like, super good at taking the puck away from opposing forwards and, you know, really good on loose puck recoveries. And it's like, what the heck happened here? And the difference is he just plays with and learns from Mark Giordano and – it's changed his game, made him a more complete player. And, you know, Giordano's done that for Brody as well. So yeah. I think there's an element of, uh, we'll call it leadership for mm. Mark Giordano that I really like. Yeah, but like the actual tangible, useful kind that we can point to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to say, there's no better uh, sort of point in the favor of Mark Giordano and what he's capable of than what's happened to TJ Brody the past year and a half because uh, he's really he's really fallen off the map. Yeah, and there's like, you know, I I know TSN recently released their what would an Olympic team look like if the NHL was going, and they had Morgan Riley on left defense over Mark Giordano, and I'm like, how does this guy not get respect, especially because I think it was Craig Button who made the list, and, you know, he's a Calgary guy, Mm. to not bring Mark Giordano there, like, I know that part of the reasons why he hasn't made like Olympic teams before is because he was injured at the wrong times and, you know, he just kind of got overlooked. But if he never ends up playing for a World Cup or Olympic team for Team Canada, that just it boggles the mind because he is very clearly, in my opinion, the best left hand D that Canada's had for the last like five, six years. Yeah. Yeah. He's a heck of a player. Um, so. I had uh, I had Giordano sixth, and I had Hampus Lindholm, as we mentioned, fifth, and we already chatted quite a bit about him, so we don't have to continue that. And we get into this top four here, and I really see no argument for not having, you know, you can quibble in the order, I guess, but like these top yeah, four think guys we're are... Have the same guys? It's, yes, I, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, you're on, I just, you're on like, crazy pills. In, like, <laughs> I just threw in some random in there, you know, hmm. Damon Severson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, John Moore. If we're only talking about three on three exploits. Oh um, man, he's good three on three. He's here at three on three. Yeah. Um, so I had, this is my order. I had Dowdy, Subban, Hedman, Carlson in that order. Um, and I believe you had Dowdy second and Hedman fourth, or was it? It was uh, Hedman, Dowdy, Subban, Carlson. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm. I mean, that two to four range could really go in any way, and then Carlson yep, totally should be agree. first and. I don't know like what is what is there to say about all these guys they're all really good i think the most interesting thing actually here is and i brought this up to someone um a couple of days ago i forget who but it's sort of i don't know if it's always been this case or if it's happened recently and people just aren't really realizing it but pk suban i view as much more of a sort of prototypical defensive defenseman than this sort of it's weird, eh? guy with a puck who's you know has a flair for the dramatic and is this offensive dynamo which i guess he kind of was more so early in his career but lately he's and he's also bucked the trend of being a guy who dumps the puck out a lot and i generally really don't like that at all but he actually seems to be a pretty effective doing so and i guess the other parts of his game make up for 
any any drawbacks that would result from it. So I just think, yeah, he's 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 a defensive defenseman. People don't think of him that way, but his game profile is like that, and his numbers look like that, and it's it's just the nature of the beast. The fact it's just what's happening. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, I was surprised as well when I looked into the numbers and he ended up being stronger on defense than offense. You know, it's something that I've said that he's as strong uh, for the last couple of years. But now I know part of it last year was he wasn't able to create the amount of offenses he usually is because of the back injury, like Mm -hmm. playing a whole year with a herniated disc in your back. I'm guessing it's not very comfortable. Right. But, uh, you know, he did it. He played really well in the playoffs and everything. But, you know, even even now, like looking at him this year, he's got 18 points in 23 games. But I think he's far more noticeable for his defensive play than what he's creating, which is, you know, a a new thing for P.K. Subban. Like he still has that dynamic play, the, Mm -hmm. the game that he had against the Canadians. He basically like single-handedly created a goal and embarrassed uh, Max Pacioretty walking him. But you know, mostly he's keeping things simple and you know uh, playing a very defensive style. And like you said, yeah, I don't love the dump outs that he does. But in terms of guys who do dump the puck out, he's actually like the most successful defenseman at it. Like he can, he always finds ways to clear the zone. So at least there's that. And it seems like his teammates are pretty good at anticipating where he's going, and he kind of uses those dump outs as almost like uh, stretch passes sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can take advantage of it well, it can work, even if it's not the most ideal thing for a player of P.K. Subban's caliber. But I also wonder if, you know, last year was a little bit different with Ekholm. You want to see Subban making more plays. But this year with Alexi Emelin, where you know all the pressure is on Subban to make those zone exits, it does make sense to conserve your energy a little bit and not make the fancy play because you can't really you know bank on your partner bailing you out if you make a mistake. Right, and I guess yeah, the kind of disappointing part or underwhelming part would be that most guys that do rely on that dump out typically do so out of necessity and they don't really necessarily yeah. have the skill to do anything better. Whereas with Subban, it's pretty clear he could be doing more with it and he might be leaving some some stuff on the table but you know you're right i mean we talked about this in the uh when we were talking about the stanley cup final last year and i believe you and i actually did a preview of it together and it was that you know it does seem at least that there's a bit of thought to it and he sort of kind of directs these dump outs in a way and and at least gives his teammates and his uh in his forwards a kind of a, a fighting chance to retrieve the puck and they have some personnel that can maybe do so better than other teams so he has that going for him in his favor, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, he's just he's just rock solid as a defenseman. And the other three guys, I mean, Dowdy does everything well, and he's so smooth. And it's kinda, yeah, Dowdy just doesn't make mistakes, eh? Like that's like the biggest factor in his game. I find is like you look at it, and I found it interesting that him and Kopitar for the last two straight years have had the highest pass success rate in the NHL, hmm. and you know, like Dowdy has the lowest turnover rate relative to team in the NHL every year. So, like, and, you know, part of it is he was making pretty safe plays under uh, under Sutter. But, you know, at a certain point, you have to give a guy credit for never making mistakes. Yeah, I agree with that. And, yeah, it's it's, it's a bit of a shame that we had to kind of have that whole Dowdy versus Carlson thing because I feel like it definitely undersold what Dowdy is capable of and what type of player he is. Um, and, you know, the thing that I give Dowdy a lot of credit for uh, is – you know, he's played a lot with Muzzin this year again, and um, or actually he hasn't played that much. He's only played 80 minutes or so together, but they're paired currently. Uh, but it's it's the past few years where 
regardless of who you play with Dowdy, it's going to be an effective pairing. And there's something to be said for that where it's such a luxury for his team because if, you know, they can they, they can do so many different things or they can sort of allocate their resources and to help their depth a little bit and they don't necessarily just need to load up a top pairing with him and Muzzin. They can play Derek Forbord or Braden McNabb in the past or whoever. Like, I, they could put Oscar Fattenberg with him and I'm sure he'd be fine. And so it's one of those things where it's that, that must be such a luxury for his team and his coach that you just know that Dowdy plus whoever is going to be a really, really good pairing and you don't have to even worry about it. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the great benefit of these high-end guys is, you know, uh, Giordano hasn't had to uh, with Hamilton and Brody, both really good players. But, you know, Duncan Keith carrying Brent Seabrook, uh, Victor Hedman carrying whoever when Anton Strom is not there, uh, Drew Doughty carrying lots of people. You know, P.K. Subban has carried Hal Gill, Josh Georges, Alexi Emelin throughout his career. Eric Carlson has carried, you know, like 15 different corpses. You know, those ty- types of guys, you're never hearing the teams going out and saying like, oh, we need to find a partner for this guy, a partner who can work with this guy. It's just not a problem for those teams. It's this huge luxury that, like you said, you can just throw anyone there and you have a, a top pairing that can hold off the opposing team's best lines. And the the guys who are, you know, a couple tiers below that is when you constantly hear, you know, like the Morgan Rileys of the world, where like they need somebody to help insulate them. Mm, and, yeah. you know, that's where, how I think you can tell the, like, e- elite of the elite versus, like, the really good defensemen. Yeah, and I'm looking at Hedman's partners this year, and, you know, he's played 66 minutes with Anton Strahlman, and the two of them have predictably been remarkable together. But beyond that, I mean, his top partners have been Jake Dodgson, Andrew and Andre Schuster, and Dan Girardi, and uh, oh boy, that's uh, yeah, that's a murderer's row of uh, of guys who should not be playing on a top pairing. So it's uh, but yeah, that's the that's the luxury when you have a guy like Victor Hedman is that uh, he's just so damn good that he's going to be able to carry those guys. And although I, I <laughs> him and Dan Girardi in forty minutes have a uh, have a thirty seven point eight uh, percent shot rate, shot share, which uh, well, listen, Hedman's still human, all right. Yeah. <laughs> There's only so much you can do. I mean, even Eric Carlson, if you throw Dan Girardi on him, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't be, you know, crushing it. Uh, he he kind of struggled a little bit with Mark Mathot last year, mm. who really fell off a cliff. And I remember, you know, uh, halfway through the season, I wrote a piece on Eric Carlson being like, look, his numbers are just not what they usually are. And something's going wrong here. And like I at that point had not thought to look into his partners which was a oversight on my part but then by the end of the year when i was looking at like uh, who should win the norris i looked into how carlson was playing with method versus clausen and it was like this huge like 15 16 point gap in like goals for percentage and corsi it was like okay method's the problem <laughs> and he was also uh, like i looked into it and like no one in the entire league for defensemen who would play like a reasonable number of minutes touch the puck less often than method. Mm. Like he was touching it less than Borowiecki, yep. which is that's bad for yeah. people who don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Probably good. Uh, that was probably good resource management, though. I uh, I want the puck on Carlson's stick every single opportunity possible. This is true. Um, yeah, no, I, I love Dan Girardi, man. Listen, these are such unpredictable times in 2017. So many crazy things are happening in this world. It's it's reassuring when you sort of just know what you're gonna get from someone or something. And, <laughs> I thought you were going in another route, and I was gonna say oh. <laughs> Dmitry Popovich calls Dan Girardi for the Norris. So. No, no, but I will say that I like tuned in on Saturday night. Uh, Lightning are playing the Penguins. First shift of the game, thirty seconds in, 
Andrade is just like laying on all fours in front of his net, blocking Peter Budai from actually playing his position. He's like trying to stop the puck with his face. And I was like, oh my God. Dan. I mean, that's slightly better than his usual pass from behind the net into the slot right onto an opposing player's stick, which is like, you know, the best thing that, uh, that Dan Girardi does. And I don't know how he does it so consistently, but it's like every couple of games. Well, I mean, the the Tampa Bay Lightning in-house analytics show that it's uh, it's a repeatable skill. So, yeah, I always wonder when, when teams talk about that, whether or not they're just like saying that just to shut people up mm. because i feel like a lot of times they there's not actually anything there yeah well especially in this case i feel very very yes. confident and the lightning are a smart organization but i'm calling uh i'm calling bs on that one um yeah, i agree all right and carlson number one uh yep you know we've been talking for like 70 minutes here and we're going to talk for less than 70 seconds about the uh the number one guy on our ranking list but there's just there's, there's nothing, nothing left there's to say about him. him yeah and we've we talked to him talked about him throughout this podcast but He's just the best at everything, and uh, yep. and there's no argument that he's not the best defenseman in the league. And let's uh, let's just call it a day there. So Andrew, plug some stuff. Uh, where can people find you? What are you working on these days? And uh, and all that good stuff. Well, you can always check me out on Sportsnet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write three articles a week there. Uh, only two this week. Cause I did four last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, RDS as well. I write once there a week. Uh, sporting news once a week, and I'm. Uh, this week, actually, starting up my podcast again. So, oh, looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll be breaking down some movies and stuff, and maybe some hockey as well. Sweet. Um, and you and I will uh, will chat sometime. I guess we'll go for next week. We still have to do our uh, ranking our left wingers and right wingers. So wingers, that's yeah. I look forward to. Should we should we separate left wingers and right wingers, or should we make like a consensus top like fifteen of wingers? What do you think? I, th- I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you obviously wrote about them separately, but I think we could yeah. just combine them, especially since some guys do kind of gravitate from one position to the other. And also, I guess it's not like a it's not really a, a distinct position. Like it'd be weird if we ranked <laughs> defensemen and centers and as a top twenty, but for the wingers, it's like they're kind of interchangeable. So I'm I'm cool with just doing one big ranking for those. Yeah, it's totally up to you. I mean, I, I think both ways work. I mean, there's different – like what, what I found this year was like there's very different uh, like spreads for left and right wingers. Mm. Like it, it was weird like how much different uh, – like one side uh, was much stronger defensively than the other side, one side much stronger offensively. So like maybe there's something there that like just hockey systems tend to favor – a specific role for a specific winger but uh it'd be interesting to get well, into if we do two separate podcasts for right and left wingers are we gonna have to talk about alex ovechkin on both yep mm. yeah right. he's number one on both fair all right uh so people have that to look forward to and we'll uh we'll do that next week and in the meantime we'll figure out uh how exactly we want to do it sounds good man all right chat soon the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast. <laughs>